Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 102 of the podcast, the topic is the geotech decade. Our guest is David A. Bray, inaugural director of the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council, the esteemed Washington, D.C.-based think tank, who is on for the second time. For additional context and more personal background on David, you can listen to episode number 15 on post-pandemic tech. In this conversation, we talk about the report of the Commission of Geopolitical Impacts of New Technologies and Data, the Geotech Commission. The report, which will be released on May 26th, provides an extensive set of recommendations for the United States and its like-minded allies to thrive in a decade defined by data and technology collaboration and competition. I ask David these questions and more. What is the geopolitics of tech? Why is this report and the commission important? What does the report recommend and how is this different from other commissions? How does the commission hope to socialize and scale its recommendations into tangible actions? And what has the process of writing looked like? What are the main recommendations? And what are the implications for the next decade? David, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Still doing great. Last time I saw you, you were in the garden. There were some birds and a bunch of uh, interesting interruptions. It was. It was definitely outside. It was. Uh, I think it was early on into the COVID-19 pandemic, and here we are about a year later. So. Yeah, and you've got yourself a Japanese screen in the background. You, you, you put on a suit, and uh, things have changed. <laughs> well, you know, we, we got a little bit more professional with this whole thing, so yes. <laughs> yeah. So David, some of our listeners uh, and viewers, because I'm now uh, also doing videos, uh, have heard from you before, but I don't want to presume that that's the case for everybody. So uh, just to keep things uh, you know, in line here, you're an interesting guy. You are this international technology, MIT, think tank, hybrid person, highly networked, but still modest enough that you converse with me. That's kind of my one-liner on you. <laughs> I hope, I, well, one, I hope to always be conversing with you. And if I ever get like, if I ever like get where like somehow I've got my head above my shoulders, just knock me down a peg, please. If you get weird, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> please do. Because yeah. we're all human. And, and I think for me, I appreciate it. I mean, my own background, uh, I fell at my head in early age and it made all the difference. Um, slightly longer. I, I've done everything from uh, dealing with bioterrorism preparedness response during the early 2000s, small satellites with the Department of Defense in the 90s, uh, time in Afghanistan, both with humanitarian and military efforts in the late 2000s, uh, time with the intelligence community and the federal communication in the mid 2010s, and now uh, the inaugural director at the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center, uh, where we're honored to have you as a senior fellow, and we're really looking at how do data and technologies change geopolitics and vice versa. So we're going to get right to that in a second. I just want to ask you, you've been in Washington for a weird year. There are always weird years in Washington. Oh, there's always weird years. Exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> How weird was this year? This year? Um, if anything, it, it seemed like it was, it was a culmination of where things have been following as an arc for the last four or five years. Um, you know, I, I go back to 2015 when things started getting really weird. I, I, I was... 
at the time in 2015, I was a public facing senior executive. Um, and, and I already started to see, I mean, I had never had a Twitter account before I left the intelligence community. When I left the intelligence community 2013, it was, it was something I did and I did it in the name of my role because that's just how I felt was appropriate to engage and learn from the public. And 2013, it was good. 2014, still good. 2015, I started to see both large amounts of bots, um, but also people that would come after us and say, you're not doing what you want us, what we want you to do. And I'd be like, well, you know, the way we work in the United States is you elect the leaders and elected leaders tell us what to do. I'm not a political appointee, but if you want change, change who you want to elect. And they're like, well, you're still not listening to us. And that, and that, that, that just sounds, you know, they, they started saying that sounds very liberal. And I said, well, it goes back to Madison and Jefferson, which, you know, they actually said, this is what a republic works like. And I said, but I celebrated diversity of views. And, and, they, and they said, well, diversity, diversity doesn't help anybody. And I said, well, per, you know, Fortune and Forbes magazine, diversity on boards actually leads to better outcomes. And they were quiet. But it was just that sort of anger in people that was present in 2015. So if anything, I look at combined with the pandemic, and then we now have a change in presidents, maybe this is the end of at least that first five or six year arc. But to me, the question is, there's still a lot of frustration present. We're not through the pandemic completely, not just in the United States, but in the world. What what does the decade look ahead and does it get better? Or is this a brief respite before who knows what else comes about? I, I love the way you summarize, uh, you know, these macro things really succinctly. Uh, and I think there are a lot of questions So we'll talk about the geotech decade. And, and I first want you to define it for uh, all of us. What is the geotech? What is geotech? Again, I know we talked about this last time, but I feel like geopolitics and the geopolitics of technology, those are massive words. In a nutshell, what are we talking about? And then we can get into the report and a bunch of different things that are happening. And by the time we issue this episode, the report should be out. And this is big news. But first of all, the geopolitics of technology or, or geotech. What right. is that? Well, it's recognizing that we are entering into this decade ahead in which technology and data will have disproportionate impacts on the world stage, how societies operate. And, and, and in some respects, technology has always been there. I mean, I go back to, you know, oil powered navies were transformative for Europe and they led to some good things and also a lot of bad things. And then we had nuclear devices and, you know, there was the arms race and mutually assured destruction. So technology has always impacted geopolitics. But, but really what we're seeing in this new decade is an era in which I tell people the good news is technology is being democratized. The challenging news is technology is getting democratized, and now you can do things that only the Soviet Union and the United States could do 40 years ago. Uh, and so when you're, when you're able to do what the CIA and the KGB can do through your phone or through your computer, um, no wonder we have misinformation, disinformation. No wonder we have questions about what's real and everything like that. So, so the good news is this decade is going to be one in which people are going to be empowered like never before, but that is also going to put a strain on how we organize and operate as societies. I want to do two things now. I want to be a little mindful of this new generation, which uh, I guess none of the two of us belong to. But let's get to the headlines first. So give me a couple of pointers uh, in terms of the executive recommendations and headlines of this report. And then I will ask you how this report got created, what, uh, you know, and how the animal got made, how the sauce got made. But let's get first just to a couple of the things so that, you know, we understand exactly the relevance of this. And I wanted to maybe tee it up. So there's seven different types of recommendations. Let's just quickly hit on global science and technology leadership because it relates to the role of the U.S., relates to this global that we have talked about, this 
very strange word global because what does it really mean right uh, mm-hmm. what is the recommendation in the in the glo- in that area what what is the the right. one liner so the one liner because again each chapter has really deep nested recommendations but the one liner for global science and technology leadership is really the recognition that no one country can go it alone on S&T leadership. I mean, in the case of the United States, we're, we're 330 million people, but we're only 330 million people out of a country, of a world of 7.9 billion people going in 8 billion people. And so in this world we're going into, we've got to think about how do we work with partners in Europe, partners such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, possibly even partners with India in the Middle East, like with US, UAE and others. How can we work together so that we're recognizing the different S&T strengths of, of each other collaboratively and move forward? Um, one can think of this as an example of like the Artemis Accords, which the Artemis Accords are, it's not just the United States, it's Australia, it's Canada, it's Luxembourg, it's several nations all committed to going to the moon we need to do the same thing for other S&T challenges, like how do we address climate change? Uh, what do we do about biotech? That, that it's really going to be about recognizing the, the, dare I say the word, synergy, or at least the collective collage of our talents working together versus any one nation going alone. That's perfect, David. I, I want to hit on a couple of them, and then I will ask you more about them. The second one is, is uh, pretty obvious, I think, in the sense that it is the topic is obvious, security. And, and we can go into the details of it, but essentially you're recommending Stronger security, no surprise. No surprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we'll get into the meat of what that means, but but really, I just wanted to cover right now. So clearly, security is a massive part of this report because a geotech decade is going to entail enormous investments in security. Exactly, you have to do secure data and communications. But it's interesting because. One could look at the last decade in which there were questions about should there be back doors. Remember the 90s, there was talk about the clipper chip. And what we're coming down definitively and saying is no. You've got to have secure data and secure communications. If you don't, everything else falls apart. Hmm. And then there's a bit, which is the corollary to security, is the trust part. Yes, trust you part. You got some Jews on the, on the trust part too? <laughs> well, that, that gets it. So, so I look at it as almost everything has to build. You have to start with this S&T part, then you've got to secure data. Then you get to the trust question, which is, let's say you've done the secure data, you've done the global S&T. We are, we'll still have challenges of misinformation, disinformation, challenges of deep fakes, challenges of things taken out of context, challenges of bots, challenges of AI. And so if we don't figure out, particularly in societies that are open and representative, if we don't figure out how to do trust in the digital economy, we'll pull ourselves apart, whereas autocracies won't have that same weakness because they just don't simply care what other people think about. And then we get to the supply chains and the resiliency, because you know once you covered the basis and you sort of think you've secured it, then of course there's, there's complications because uh, there's a whole system. And yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> there are pieces. The I guess system. it's the pieces of the system. Well, and what we realized with that, and COVID-19 put in stark relief is, the good news is our world is interconnected, but it's often interconnected in brittle and, brittle and fragile ways. Uh, and we saw it with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're still reeling from that. But also with the, you know, when the Suez Canal um, incident happened as well, that it took a while to recover. And so we need to better understand supply chains, uh, both to secure them, but also to be more resilient. And if there's any consistent theme across all the recommendations of this report is things are going to happen this decade. We are now interconnected more than ever but we need to be more resilient in the face of those connections so that when things happen, it doesn't pull us all apart. So I'm almost achieving my goal, which is to get to 10 minutes and seven recommendations. So <laughs> the number five is, is, is easy because it's about global health and the pandemic and what to do about global wellness, which I love as a, as a concept. Uh, this would have never been a, a, a big point in your report a year and a half ago. 
hundred percent. Well, that, uh, and it's just recognizing that wellness is an important part. The other key thing I would say, COVID-19 put in stark relief, at least for the vaccines we have in the country here in the United States, and I know they're getting overseas as well, two of them have actually been designed nucleotide by nucleotide in a computer and actually printed by a nucleotide printer. So in a world in which we can both design therapies and we can print them nucleotide by nucleotide, that's great. But also, how do we address the realities that personalized medicine could also be used as personalized poison? So it's interesting. Where would we have been without BioNTech and Moderna, two startups, right? 100%. Oh, and if you look back, I mean, I was involved with severe acute respiratory syndrome when that happened in 2003. It took us three years to get a vaccine for that um, because we were still doing the egg-based vaccine production. So yeah. investments that were made in S&T after SARS in 2003 paid off when COVID-19 happened. This should be a slam dunk for R&D, if anything is, but I'm not sure if, if it will be, right? Um, like all things, politics complicates things, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're getting to number six, which I think is fascinating because it has to do with space. And, and, and again, yes, a geotech center, I, you know, to be fascinated around space, but new space and, and space tech, and this is heating up. It's not just Elon Musk and, you know, uh, you know Virgin, uh, you know, sending rockets and then NASA, of course. This is getting busy. Oh, I mean, you just saw just a few weeks ago, we've got China sending rockets to put apart, put they together. They were just space on station. the moon, yeah. Yeah, and then the trauma, and then they were just on Mars. I mean, so 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 yes, it, it is um, UAE sent a rocket to Mars as well. Uh, this space is well, space is getting a very interesting space, and it's like you said, it, it's three dimensional chess. It's it's both countries pursuing it, like China, uh, like UAE, but it's also companies pursuing it. And this decade, the way we put it forward is, we are probably going to start this decade with ninety nine percent of the assets in space being government operated, and by the end of the year, we'll be down to. Less than 1% government operated, 99% of them being commercially operated. And how many are going to be operated by the people? 100%. That's the interesting question. And will space be something that uplifts us all, or will it only be enriching a few? Lastly, the future of work. There is nothing without the future of work. That, that's a crazy topic. <laughs> I mean, I can't even begin, right? Oh, well, it's, it, it, it's, yeah. What does it look like? How do we make sure it rises all boats? Um, how do we help with retraining? And um, whether you're retraining, if you're someone that's, you know, you're, you're 30 or 40 years into a career and your factory closes, and now the question is, do you retire early? Do you retrain? If you're someone that's been a stay-at-home spouse and now you're going back to workplace, or if you're someone that's right now in high school getting ready to go to college, how do you prepare for the decade ahead? And that's why the future of work is so essential. Thanks, David. I, I now wanted to sort of calm down change tax, really figure this out. Because there, I, I have some real questions about kind of each of these recommendations where you see them leading and all of that stuff. But first, I wanted to recognize that, you know, sometimes people think that you produce a report and it's just all politicky and it's just like, you've got to get the recommendations in. But this was a pretty long process. Can you give a little bit of a sense of what went into studying this topic? Who was involved? How long did it take? And, and how did the cake get baked? Yep. This was a 14-month endeavor uh, in which we first had to assemble the commissioners. And the commissioners themselves are diverse. Uh, while they do seem to be mainly United States, we've got folks from colleagues with SICPA in Europe. Uh, we've got uh, folks that are coming from both the Congress. We've got two senators, Senator Mark Warner, Virginia Democrat. We've also got Senator uh, Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio. They get along with each other. We've also got Representative Mike McCall from Texas and Representative Suzanne Delbeni from Washington State also get along with each other. So we've, we've got bipartisanship there. Uh, we've also got members um, such as Sue Gordon, who was the previous principal deputy director and the acting director of national intelligence. We've got Vent Cerf, who helped make the uh, internet happen in TCPIP. We've got Shirley Ann Jackson, um, 
the first uh, black uh, American to graduate woman to graduate from MIT uh, with a engineering degree. Very interesting group of people that we've all assembled. And, 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 and like all things, the first thing is trying to first figure out what we're going to tackle. And, and when you, even when you get all these different commissioners together, they all have different views of what the commission should tackle. And so there's always a harmonization period. And, and, and then there's the, you know, then there's the clash of ideas where, where maybe one is taking more of an idea of this industry leaning, one's taking more of this, you know, global leaning. Uh, and, and it's always the idea of how do you get it so that everyone's still talking to each other? Uh, but then also how do you feed it back to the team? Because we did have the Geotech Center's team where we're feeding out actual research. We're feeding out ideas. We did geotech hours with you and others to really sort of feed that back to the commissioners to sort of ignite their imagination and see what they responded to and what they liked. I have one question. Are you <laughs> sure. guys still friends? Are you Go guys ahead. still friends? Are we still friends? Oh, yes. The good news is, if anything, um, we're stronger than ever. Now, there is always this interesting period where initially you get everyone together, everyone's happy, and then you're going through some iterations and things are great. And then you tell people, okay, we're going to be wrapping the commission up by this date. And, you know, that's when things get a little bit heated because then they're like, oh, now I've actually got to read this thing. And you get closer and closer to that date. And now more and more people read it. And all of a sudden, like you get these midnight calls where it's like, how can the report possibly say this? And you're like, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <And> it's midnight, <laughs> you know, and but that's that's, you know, so having a deadline serves as the forcing function, one, for people to try and reach to the actual resolutions and everything like that. Uh, it's where you've got to keep yourself humble and you've got to keep yourself smiling and laughing because they're all internally politicking. And there's some cases where they, even, they may even just say, well, if this goes in it like this, I'm going to walk away. And you're like, calm down. It's going to be okay. So, <laughs> so David, <laughs> this center is fairly new. Uh, yeah. Is that why you wrote the report or why did you write the report? I yes. mean, it's important to put the stamp on the Geotech Center, right? You you, you are the inaugural director and yes. you're writing a report. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's also defining what we mean because I feel like so many... So it's interesting. I just briefed the Atlantic Council's board this morning. And one of the things I said to them is, all too often, policymakers forget the impact of data and tech, partly because a lot of policymakers don't come with tech or data background. And so it's like the geeks in the basement. But also because it's hard, it's nebulous, it's emergent. It's not a straight X leads to Y. It's more like you can plan for something, but then all these other things will happen. And so, so you hear where policymakers and others will say, tech for good or, or you know, a, a coalition of technology democracies. But the reality is different democracies have different value sets when it comes to data and tech. I mean, we're seeing it right now between Europe with GDPR, United States. Yes, we do have two states that have a privacy standard, but the other 48 don't. Um, and so when people say tech for good, we've not really ever defined it. And so this was a chance to try and bring together a, a collage of folks to try and actually at least begin to say, what is that North Star for when we say tech for good, data for good, what does it look like in a way that was not just bipartisan, not just US, but I mean, we actually had a wonderful praise that I got about a week ago from someone that said, for a report written by mostly Americans, it's still quite applicable to us in Europe, which to me is success. Uh, and then it's also trying to get industry on board too. Well, this is interesting. <laughs> I was just in a a big e-government conference this morning, uh, arranged by a European country that you know self-proclaimed think they're uh, the global leaders. Uh, although uh, a lot of other independent studies would at least confirm that they are in the top three. Regardless, mm -hmm. uh, there is this, I think, certain uh, European arrogance in a lot of these tech fields that 
indicates that uh, yes, the U.S. may have some startups and some legacy, but but we're far ahead. And and in many ways, when it comes to regulating and understanding, there's certainly the social impacts of tech. Um, I, I guess I'm asking this a little bit as a when you compare this report to sort of any other report, what did you have in mind? And for people who don't know much about think tanks, like what what does it even look like? And how would you compare it to, like it, it's, it's not a policy document, it's a recommendation document. It's a beefy thing. It's almost like a book, mm-hmm. right? How, 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 what were the benchmarks for this report? Was it previous US think tank reports and technology? What did you have in mind? Well, so, um, I was I was biased by my own past experiences, which in 2011, I got approached by the then Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Stephanie O'Sullivan, who said, would you like to serve as an executive director for a bipartisan commission that's going to review all the research and development programs of the U.S. intelligence community? Uh, and I, of course, said yes. Um, I only found out the following day that there had been three people in about three months not work out in that role, and so I was now number four. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, good CIA recruiter. She doesn't tell you that, by the way, there's already, you know, there's already been casualties. You're now number four. Um, but when I went into that role, um, there were six Democrats. There were six Republicans. Um, they were frustrated with each other. They felt like there wasn't good communication. Uh, they, they didn't know how to deal with it. And, it, and it, you know, we think it was a very simple task, which is review the R&D efforts of the intelligence community. And are we ready for the next decade ahead? Um, and so I assembled a team. In fact, some of those members on the team I actually brought to this. Uh, you met Peter Brooks. Peter Brooks was one of the people that actually helped us out there and some other people. And it was it, we, we started with the premise that it needed to be action-oriented. And it also needed to be accessible to people who weren't policymakers. Um, if it was just a policy document, then we failed. If it's just a document that's not action-oriented, then we failed. And if it's not taken up, we failed. And, and what I now know, uh, what I've heard already, both in unclassified and classified contents, about 75 to more of our recommendations for that report, which was issued in 2013, have been implemented. So our bar for the same report is the same thing. Accessible to everybody, not just policymakers. Um, is action-oriented, so you'll see a lot of things that are like, here's what we can do. It's not just admiring the problem. And, and what I hope is that maybe five to seven years from now, we can be having this conversation again and talking about how things actually flowed from it that were action-oriented. Um, so with that said, you know, this was also the year that there was another commission report. The National Security Commission on AI in the United States released a huge report, which was more than 700 pages long. We didn't even come close to that. I think we're about 150 pages, give or take. We'll see. Um, but even then, we had a one-page chart, and, and that's so key because when you're interacting with staffers who have a lot of you know demands on their times, you don't want to oversimplify it that you lose the depth of what you're saying. And that one-page chart has the different recommendations, but then they can go back to the deeper things, and that's distinguishing us. The other thing is our executive summary is like less than you know it's less than eight pages. Uh, just by comparison, again, no slight to National Security Commission on AI. Their executive summary was more than 30 pages. So, well, you and I have talked about this in the previous episode, uh, how the challenge, how challenging it is indeed that there's, you know, whether it's two cultures or, or, or five different cultures, but regardless, there is a culture difference. And it's not necessarily that the tech savvy actually know everything. And it's not no, no. that the politicians know a lot about, you know, it, it's not that, and it's certainly not about intelligence. It's just that, Really, the exposure to all these issues, there aren't that many people who are able to, in the same discussion, jiggle and juggle all of their other priorities and then keep their head straight on 
future technology policy in a plethora of domains with changing variables all the time, this is not simple. And, and in, neither should it be viewed as simple, I guess. But the communication challenge is very real. So congratulations on, on attempting that. But it also explains, I guess, incidentally, a critique I had when I read the draft. I said, David, this is not at all ambitious. <laughs> it was not ambitious enough. And, and that's partly because where, you know, I often say the art of leadership is the art of managing expectations. Right. And so I knew yours, but, you know, you're, you're already bought in. You already recognize the world is changing. We need to embrace it. I've also got other people that are starting from milepost negative 100, and I've got to bring them along. And so, yes, I, I think... We, we tried to make it so that it was as ambitious as possible and as forward-leaning as possible, but also recognizing that you we wanted to bring along a bipartisan, which, as you can imagine, in the United States right now, bipartisanship is really challenging to do, um, and also not just government but industry, when, in fact, when we have Silicon Valley right now, there's several people in Silicon Valley that are like, why do we even need world governments? Why do we need nation governments? Why can't we just go and do our own thing? Um, and so... This was trying to chart a path that said, look, there is goodness from these different perspectives. Can we at least find a way to chart the world together? And then, yes, if you want to go more in one direction or another, you can. But can we at least all agree on this is the direction that takes us to the North Star? So, David, I want to ask you uh, a couple of things. First off, I'm sort of curious, what's your favorite recommendation that would make you happy in 10 years uh, or five years if it is implemented? My favorite one is actually, yeah, it's chapter five. It's with global health technologies um, in which you'll see we recommend that we need to do a, a open global way of, of essentially creating smoke alarms for the planet that will let you know if, if a future, not just a future pandemic, but any new emergent pathogen that's not recognized, instead of relying on, an, on governments like identifying something and then maybe telling another government and maybe we find out a few months later, it's like, why can't we know right away? Um, and I think this is going to be so important, not just because there may be future, you know, whether it's COVID-19 or other things like that. But as I say, I mean, the good news is personalized medicine's coming. The bad news is personalized medicine's coming, and that's also personalized poison. So we've got to get ready for a future in which, unfortunately, people can new, use nucleotide printers to design some new virulent strain of something by design. And also that same technology to monitor the planet and have it be open for changes that are happening in the biological space can also do early warnings of how climate change is impacting the biosphere as well. So it's a monitoring system that you have in mind, a sensory monitoring system that has a global scope. It's global scope, and it's not just biotels. And so it's not just looking for biosignatures. It's also looking for non-obvious things, such as, um, for example, when I was with um, the Centers for Disease Control and responding to SARS, we knew about SARS because the price of garlic went up tenfold. Uh, we also knew because not that we were monitoring any one person, but we saw the changes in traffic patterns. Less people were going to factories, more people were going to hospitals. And the sure prices of garlic went up. went up because people felt like they had inflammatory reactions? In China, in China, yes. China, it is seen as a cure-all. And sure enough, if you're monitoring for the price of garlic and it goes up tenfold, Something's going on. Um, but so it's is this what happened during this epidemic as well? Sure enough, it did. Yeah, the price of garlic went up. And also you could see, but this time instead of from classified satellite imagery back in 2003, you could actually see from classified, not classified, from commercial satellite imagery in 2019 and 2020, you could see changes of patterns of life. And so you can establish without violating anyone's privacy what does normal patterns of life look like. And when something changes, you can say, well, is, is there a biological reason for it? Is there some other reason for it? And that can be enough to tip and cue and say, we need to care about this as a planet because it's going to impact us all. 
David, I have a difficult question for someone who works with policy in D.C. What is the U.S.'s role long-term in all this? Because, you know, arguably we are moving into a very globalized world. And some people would say, you know, in some domains the U.S. has somewhat abdicated that role. In other domains it sort of really insists and sort of knocks it down on everyone else. That would at least be the outside view. Yes. Uh, this is hard to navigate, especially if you're a kind of a transatlantic think tank with some you know, heritage in, in the Europe-US relationship. How, how do you write a global report in a world that you probably ideologically think is a global world, but you're sort of, you are in DC, your main stakeholder is in DC, you have another big stakeholder in Europeans, because that's the legacy of, of where this think tank comes from, but your message is global. How, how do you reconcile that? And how did you uh, reconcile that in the report? Well, so you're, first, let me tackle the question of what is the United States' role into the future? And, and this is personal views only, and, and it, but it's, of course, obviously embodied in a report, which is if you go back to what the ideals were when the United States were created, and I'll go to the ideals versus the reality, because reality was not as great as we wanted it to be, but the ideals were individual freedom, the value of choice, the value that you could help chart your destiny, and that there was... Um, a tolerance of different faiths and beliefs and that it was a tolerance of different ideas. I think if we hold true to that, whatever we become in the future, there is goodness. Um, recognizing again, like all things, we, we've probably had some stumbles here and there and everything like that. I think we need to be aware of that. But if we lose that, I, I fear that if we lose that, then the future might be darker if we don't have someone carrying that torch. And I hope we can carry that torch with Europe. I think Europe can carry that torch with us as well. It's not just something that the United States has to do. But again, just going back to, to you know, I mean, we literally fought a war to overthrow what we thought was a excessive taxation from a king. It's become so much part of our ethos that we don't trust any authority figure nowadays. I mean, you know, you go to Europe and you, you do trust your governments, whereas we don't. And, and, and I think there's some healthy skepticism that comes with not trusting any authority figure. And if we can channel that, they're still using it. In terms of what does it look like in the decade ahead? Well, I think it's, we know a couple things, which is, again, um, you know, you've got the rise of China with 1.3 billion people. I think China could be, if it embraces some more international norms, could be a huge possibility if they move forward. But all indications at the moment is they're not adopting international norms, which would say that's where the United States needs to build a coalition. It can't go it alone relative to saying, look, 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 we're all on this planet together. China, we really want to bring you along, but we need it so that you're actually thinking about the world as a whole versus, you know, throwing all international norms out the window. The other thing, though, is recognizing that maybe we're even having the wrong conversation talking about nation states. Um, you know, before the pandemic, there were five companies on the planet, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, who had more annual revenue than all the world's countries with the exception of the top four. And that was before the pandemic. And now, you know, since COVID-19, their stock price has doubled. Uh, and so we may be facing a world in which 10 years from now, um, there are five companies that have more annual revenue than all the world's countries except for two. Well, David, you and I speak the same language, but then here's my criticism because, you know, I'm a critical journalist, podcaster. So here's my question. Why did you write a report that's destined for Washington when the biggest interlocutors are actually private companies around the world? 100%. So guess what? This is not, even though the report is involving Washington, I actually had a conversation with people in Europe and they're like, well, we might not be able to get Brussels to like join this roundtable. It was a specific roundtable. I was like, that's okay. I mean, while we want Brussels and we want to do conversations with Brussels, actually, if you can get me European entrepreneurs, that's even better because entrepreneurs are going to shape the future. And so this is an interesting, delicate balancing act of 
can I write a policy report that normal policy people will respond to, but is actually kind of written subtly for entrepreneurs? Well, that's pretty clever. Well, we'll see. I mean, the question is, do entrepreneurs, will enough entrepreneurs pick it up or will they say, you know what? I'm just out to do my bottom line and increase my share price. I don't know. I, I'm hoping we can make the case that if you only think about those things, you're going to have short-termism and guess what? Well, I don't think that's up. true. I mean, I think that uh, certainly you and I come from the same entrepreneurial culture. I spent uh, seven years at MIT, I worked with thousands of entrepreneurs. Uh, if there's one flaw that those entrepreneurs have in the eye of like immediate profits, it's that they never started with a profit motive. Number 100%. one was there's a challenge. Yes. And I'm annoyed by it and I'm going to fix it. <laughs> exactly. That's the best entrepreneur. And so, so, so yes. So, so while to me, if I look back 10 years from now, uh, I mean, while I hope policy people pick this up, this report and they do things with it, I, I will be much happier though, if entrepreneurs picked up this report and ran with it. And so really we are writing this report, even though it looks like the typical, you know, policy report, it really is for entrepreneurs and what I'm hoping, I mean, what I'm hoping is over the next year, we can trigger conversations where we can actually say, how can inventors help invent the future that we're describing? How can investors help create investments that are actually are focusing on some of the recommendations from the G2? But can you be concrete then? So if I'm, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I have tens of thousands of entrepreneurs in my network. I, yeah. The podcast is by and for, and by large, also for entrepreneurs. What should an entrepreneur take away from this report? Well, first... At least see the one chart and the executive summary, and then look at the areas and see what are you passionate about? Are you passionate about secure data and communications? Are you passionate about increasing trust in the digital economy? Are you passionate about mapping and having resilient supply chains? Are you passionate about global health technologies? Or are you passionate about the future of space or the future of work? Find what you're passionate about. And I'll give an example, like another senior fellow, uh, Dr. Divya Chander, she and others are working on a trustworthy, resilient, interoperable data fabric, which if done, in fact, she, she's got in working prototype phase already, would actually address several of the recommendations in the chapter on global health technologies. And so the takeaway I say for entrepreneurs is, if you want a better future, as we all know, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Let's create the best future together. It's interesting, Divya and I have a, a podcast coming up. We spoke for over an hour. I broke all of the rules of like keeping a podcast short. And we talk about the future of consciousness. It was an oh, amazing episode coming up. <laughs> she is yeah. wonderful, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's I mean, good. I mean, she's a neuroscientist. She's an anesthesiologist. She's a data scientist. I mean, yes, she is one of those polymaths that I really enjoy chatting with. Yeah, well, polymaths, this is... Uh, important, right? Polymaths, they, they really are the future. But also, I, I mean, my view, though, uh, David, I'm curious to hear that. You know, if you read this report, you could be left with the idea that everyone has to be a polymath with 140 plus IQ. But I, I sort of want to make the subtle distinction that polymathic kind of awareness doesn't necessarily take PhD level knowledge in all of these domains. It's just that people really need to focus on, have a lot of things in their head at the same time and take things seriously and study things deeply. But we can't expect, right? I mean, humanity is not going to overnight all have 140 IQ and sit and scratch their head no. about these <laughs> issues. And that's really <laughs> not to be expected. No, it's not. In fact, that might be a really dismal world if it was. Uh, I don't know. I mean, right. I go back to, you know, like, uh, yeah. I, I, but what it does mean is everybody has to have at least a sense of ownership in helping to make the world better, even if it's a small thing. Um, and I think, you know, and what we may be facing right now is the consequences of 
Western society that included the liberalism ideas that you didn't have to really do anything. I mean, here in the United States, other than having to pay taxes and occasionally serve on a citizen jury, you don't have to vote if you don't want to. You don't have to serve in the military if you don't want to. And so there's really no civic responsibility that anyone feels. Uh, and I go back to the philosopher Rousseau that said democracy itself was a corrupt regime because it encouraged pursuit of happiness and pursuit of individual freedoms, but it didn't also have the idea that you also have a responsibility back to your community. And so what he was advocating for was all the values and virtues of democracy, individual choice, individual freedom, individual happiness, but also what he called a plurality, which was you have to give back to community. And so it's not that you need to have a PhD or anything like that. In fact, that would be very dismal if everyone had one. It's just about wherever you are at the local level or the global level, wherever you can, find some way to have responsibility for shaping your community to be better. Um, and not, not what I would call learned helplessness, which is I feel like right now there's a learned helplessness where people feel like... Uh, either they can't do anything or or, to, or even worse, maybe they feel like they can do something, but doing something is clicking on something or submitting a comment on social media, and that's done enough. And I'm like, mm, no. You but do, do you, David, see any communitarian instincts in contemporary society beyond kind of those guys that are sort of saying, you know, from a libertarian front, maybe that, you know, blockchain is going to enable us all, right? <laughs> Which it may be. I mean, I have big faith in blockchain and decentralization, but, you know, some of those guys are sort of like, we have to start over again. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of thought, you know, global constitutional convention, at some point, someone is going to, to front that. And there are reasons why you would want to say, yeah, democracy has some real issues mm -hmm. uh, systemically built into it because it, it just encourages the, the wrong things. But have you, have you seen anything in that direction? I mean, there are social movements, you know, Occupy and all of those things. There are certain movements out there that seriously are, you know, feel that this is not going in the right direction. But are they society builders in the end, these kind of communitarian movements? I have not movements? ones that are society builders. And part of the challenge is it's so tempting to just, say, reboot the system or, or, or start from a clean slate. And what we really need are people that are not reboot the system or start with a clean slate because, you know, that that's – that's. Uh, if, if I could recommend, there's a wonderful series online, and, and yours are great too, so do not take this as a takeaway, but ContraPoints, they do a really interesting discussion uh, in which uh, the narrator, she points out that – all too often you hear people that say, you know, overthrow everything and start anew. And most people aren't going to do that. I mean, Hobbes said, you know, again, most people, if they're happy, aren't going to go, even if they're not happy, they're still not going to do that. And so what we really need are people that are like, how do I take this turboprop plane that may be out of date and maybe squeaky and everything like that, and while it's still flying, retrofit it to be a new modern Airbus or Boeing? Uh, and, and that's a harder work to do it while it's still in flight. It's messy. Mm -hmm. It involves a lot of behind the scenes work like we do with the commission and, and other people do. You don't get a lot of glory for it, but that's the work of, of communities that's necessary. And yes, I think it is about thinking about new institutions as well. I mean, I, as much as I love the decentralization movement and distributed ledgers, some of that might be either people that don't quite understand the ripple effects of what they do, or it might even be people, I hate to say it, there may be some people that are, you know, it's like, Get rid of the existing brokers so we can put in place new brokers. Yes, they'll they'll look like they're distributed, but in fact, we know like all things, they'll eventually come back and centralize. And so it really is about charting out what do we mean by goodness and then at least finding ways that people can rally around it. But up until now, we've not had a definition of goodness for how data and tech is going to actually move the world forward. So I want to get back to the report in a second, but I'm going to ask you a little bit of a spaced out question in a very serious sort of policy uh, context. How, how long do you think if 
if things go well, if these kinds of recommendations are generally followed, are, are, can we sustain humanity on, on that basis? And, and if things go wrong, in, in other words, if none of these recommendations, if the geotech decade really goes awry, how many years do we have left on this planet? Yeah, so I'll do the negative first, which is coming from the intelligence community. I have some colleagues that are flipping coins about whether or not we're still having human conversations by the end of the century, which is not a great, you know, to, that is like, hmm, I have, I mean, I have a four-year-old right now and I want to make sure the world is better for him. And I'm sure everyone else who has children and family do too. But, you know, yeah, when I have colleagues that are like, yeah, I give the less than a 50-50 chance that we're seeing the end of the century, it's like, got to do something. But at the same time, I take a pause because go back to the tale of two cities and Charles Dickinson's, you know, Charles Dickens, where he said, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, you know, and literally in the tale of two cities, I mean, that was the French revolution and people literally were losing their heads. So, so we, we've seen dire moments in humanity before. Um, I, I'm inherently an optimist. I think you have to be because optimists are the ones that are audacity enough to actually try and change the world, uh, or at least make a positive difference. Um, but I'm also informed. And I would say if the geotech commission report recommendations are implemented, I give us a very strong chance. Um, if they're not, then it's going to be hard. I have no doubt though, but I, I, but I also want to say it's kind of like the hero's journey, which is there's going to be challenges presented to us. There's going to be drama. Uh, progress is not always a certainty. And sometimes you actually have to have setbacks to inform and grow as a planet and shared consciousness. Um, and, and so I, I am, I remain always the optimist that we humans will rally when things really hit the fan. What I'm trying to do is when things hit the fan, make it so that it's not as harmful and hurtful and as disastrous to as many people as it could be, but instead make it so it's as uplifting as possible as well. So I have no doubt there'll be setbacks, but can we at least make them so they're small setbacks that still end up an uplift as opposed to really hurtful and catastrophic ones? Give, give me your most desperate recommendation in, in the whole bag of recommendations. Which ones is it uh, w without which you are actually going to reconsider this, this optimism? So uh, in some respects, uh, again, I go back to chapter five and chapter six, which is if we don't figure out how to deal with do-it-yourself personalized medicine in a way that is still encouraging individual freedoms, we may see 10 to 15 to 20 years from now um, governments choosing to alter the physiology of humans for different purposes. That would be catastrophic in my opinion. Or worse, we see someone that does a do-it-yourself virus that, that is really catastrophic. So that's the bio side. But the other side is space. Um, if we have a collision uh, between any of our space assets that are out there, we can make so that we couldn't use space for 50 to 75 to 100 years. And I think a lot of people, it's abstract to them, but they don't realize how much we depend on what's coming from space. And I think that would be a real setback to humanity to feel like we can't we cannot both leverage what's already out there in terms of communication infrastructure and positioning assets. David, can you explain that for a second? Are you saying that space trash or radiation or whatever created from that kind of catastrophic crash, is it the, the material losses or are you actually talking about radiation? No, oh, I'm talking about, yeah, I'm talking about like just the sheer shadow. Like if two satellites collided, we could have such a debris field from just two satellites colliding such that then they have a ripple effect. And now we've taken out low Earth orbit where you cannot put things in low Earth orbit. And, and we've had this happen before, um, both in the United States, the, the United States back um, during the Cold War, at the, towards the end of the Cold War, we actually shot down one of our own satellites and it took a while for those debris to rain down. China later did something similar in the early 2000s. And it's estimated that it's gonna take between 75 and 100 years for those debris to rain down. And that was just one satellite being shot. If wow. two collide, 
Um, you can make it so that we cannot use space for 50 to 75 to 100 years. And if you think about it, I mean, that remains a source of hope, even if it's more likely that it's going to be robots initially in space, but it still remains a hope for us to get off this planet. Hmm. And so uh, I would hate to see a catastrophe of that level occur. Give me some more uh, slam dunk recommendations that you think you are going to nail, you think you have bipartisan basis for, but you're still proud of them if they do get implemented short term. I, I hope I'm right in predicting that within two to three years, we'll see, even if it's a voluntary, a voluntary privacy standard uh, emerge um, in the United States, that is a very strong recommendation from Representative Suzanne Delbeni. I think the case could be made that if each state goes on alone, and we already have Virginia and California with privacy standards, but if each of the 50 states had their own privacy standard, that would be a mess. You can imagine a little pop-up. And so I'd like to see the United States have at least a voluntary uh, national level uh, privacy standard. Uh, obviously, uh, a push for um, encryption at rest, encryption in transit for, for almost everything that we do. Um, I think that's going to be necessary. Uh, I would like to see for supply chains, an entire industry get created that's actually about better continuously knowing your supply chain um, who it's coming from, where it's coming from, that could actually have multiple effects. You could have more security in your supply chain. You could have more competence in your business. But you could also, if you have better digitization of supply chains, actually provide to consumers in the making of this product, here's the carbon emissions that were done. Here's the energy that was consumed. And so you could actually have most, almost like you have a food label, you could actually have people and they could see how energy efficient or not was the production of whatever service or good that you're procuring. My last question, uh, and you know, it's not simple, but it is my last question. So you uh, are affiliated with Singularity University, and they have this notion of exponential technologies. What were some of the exponential technologies or phenomenons that you studied, uh, phenomena you studied in this report that still remain kind of X factors to you and to the commission that you didn't quite figure out, and you're leaving it for future reports? I mean, did you consider quantum impact of that? Did you consider nanotech? Did you consider, you said personalized medicine, but did you consider all aspects of sort of synthetic biology? What were some of the technologies you sort of left on the table? Well, we tried to cover about all. You're right. We covered synthetic biology. We covered um, quantum, and we did as much as we could for a public report on quantum. I think the X factor for quantum is who's going to get there first. Um, and, and, and if I was, again, I'm probably going to be wrong, but at least if you base solely on the largest concentration of quantum computing scientists, actually Canada has the lead. Uh, and, and in fact, it's in their private companies, not in their government, as far as we know. So you could actually see a future in which is a Canadian company figures out how to solve the quantum decryption problem. Uh, and when that happens, the question is, how does it impact geopolitics? Uh, does the United States say, hey, Canada, you're now our new best friend? Or what happens there? Is it up for the highest bidder? Um, so that, that's, I think it's more the, the, the ripple effects of these technologies. Um, space, uh, I think the question really is, is this going to be something that is a pursuit of nations together? Is the Artemis Accords going to be useful? Do we need something for the Mars, like almost a Martian Accords where we're going to go it alone? Uh, or we're going to go together? Or is it really going to become the, the, the place of billionaires? And if so, how beneficial is that going to be for everybody else? I hope it's going to be beneficial for people, and hopefully there's a role. But that's also an X factor. So I would say, you know, you can map the technology trends. Um, and you assume that there's not going to be a new dark age or anything like that. But the X factor really is then... What does this mean for society? What does this mean for people? Um, do people just get so frustrated that there is a French Revolution equivalent? Um, or do we find some way to bound together as a planet and work together? 
David, it's always fascinating to speak with you. These are the conversations I love to have, and I'm so thrilled that you chose to be on this podcast and that we can issue this in connection with the report. And I am thrilled that you wrote the report with this commission, and uh, I wish you uh, best of luck presenting these findings and recommendations. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me as always. And I look forward, as, as I tell people, uh, please be bold, please be brave and benevolent for the future ahead. You have just listened to episode 102 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the geotech decade. In this conversation, we talked about the Geotech Commission's report, which will be released on May 26th, with an extensive set of recommendations for the United States and its like-minded allies to thrive in a decade defined by data and technology collaboration and competition. Tron's takeaway is that the Geotech Commission has conducted great work. The recommendations, whilst perhaps not themselves groundbreaking, are each quite important and communicated well and would make great impact on the proactive role of the United States in the world of technology and risk at large and would make one small step towards a better decade. I'm particularly thrilled by David's comment that this is destined as much towards innovators and entrepreneurs as towards governments and policymakers. That's what governance will take as we move more deeply into this decade. The important stakeholders are changing. The shapers of tomorrow are not the shapers of yesterday. After listening to the episode, find out more about the Geotech Commission's report, the Atlantic Council, and check out David A. Bray's profile on Singularity University or connect with him on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 48 on the future of AI in government, episode 46 on parliamentary tech and hypertransparency, or episode 84 on the origins and future of open science. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.